Good morning. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to the book of Proverbs, chapter 1. The book of Proverbs, chapter 1, is where we will begin our time this morning. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, we've got extras uh, in the back, so just slip up a hand and one of our church members will get it. The Bibles are on the shelf in the foyer. We build a new shelf right there on the left, Mr. Wayne. So if you need one, just slip up your hand and Mr. Wayne will bring you one. Uh, today we are completing the study of the preamble to the book of Proverbs. So we've started a study working verse by verse through the book of Proverbs. And when I say the preamble, uh, a preamble is a sort of an introductory paragraph to a book, uh, to a writing that helps prepare you for what is to come, right? And so this is our third week studying uh, this little section of seven verses. Uh, we've given some background to the author, the primary author of Proverbs, Solomon, on week one. On week two, we looked at verses two through six, where the author, Solomon, actually uses nine different terms that relate to wisdom, the kind of wisdom that uh, Solomon hopes that we walk away with from reading Proverbs. So last week, as we read verses two through six, you notice that each uh, verse begins with uh, the word to. It's explaining the purpose. You could almost imagine asking Solomon, why did you write this book? And then he, he would answer with things like, to know wisdom and instruction, to, to receive instruction and wise dealing. And so last week, we very much talked about the purpose of this book and what the essence of wisdom really is. Is But even with all those nuances from verses 2 to 6, all those nine terms that were extremely helpful for getting our minds around what wisdom is, the structure of verse 7 is different. Verse 7 stands out. It transitions us from the preamble to the first collection of wisdom writings in the book. In fact, verse 7 functions as the theological key to understanding the entire book. If you don't understand verse 7, you won't get Proverbs. If you don't understand verse 7, you won't have wisdom. So with that in mind, let's read for one more time verses 1 through 7 and then spend our time primarily in verse 7. So beginning in verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction. To understand words of insight. To receive instruction in wise dealings. In righteousness, justice, and equity. To give prudence to the simple. Knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise, and, let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. All right, let's, let's uh, pray, pray together that the Lord would give us this wisdom. Um, God, I just come to you this morning as we continue our study in Proverbs uh, and I pray that you would increase our reverent awe 
inspired fear of you this morning. May our right fear of you be the key which unlocks the knowledge and wisdom that we need desperately to live faithfully in your world. Lord, we ask that you would speak this morning and show yourself to be mighty, to be awesome, to be worthy of our obedience, worthy of our attention, worthy of our praise. Lord, we pray that you would speak through this moment where your word is opened and work a thousand different kinds of miracles in the hearts of the people who hear. We pray this by your grace. We pray this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now, chapters 1 through 9 in the book of Proverbs make up the first uh, collection of wisdom writings in the book. And the section, this collection, chapters 1 through 9, begins with the fear of the Lord. But it also ends with the phrase, the fear of the Lord. You look in chapter 9, verse 10, you see the same phrase again, right? Chapter 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. As we discussed in the Gospel of Mark, uh, we should be familiar, right, with the sandwiching technique of uh, biblical authors using this literary device that is just easiest to understand by the term sandwiching. This is where the author sort of bookends the sections with similar ideas or phrases on the outside, right, the buns, right, the, the bread, and then the, those similar ideas help you understand the meat in the middle. So not only do we see a small fear of the Lord sandwich technique in the first collection, chapters 1 through 9, but we actually see it encompassing the whole book of Proverbs. So uh, it's a bigger sandwich. Look all the way in Proverbs chapter 31, verse 30. Listen to the final descriptor of the wise woman from Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31, verse 30. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. So now back all the way to chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord makes up the outer portions of the sandwich. Thus, everything in between helps us to see what it looks like to live a life that rightly fears the Lord. Fear of the Lord is therefore the key to the knowledge that this book unfolds for us. But the question, the big question, is what in the world does it mean to fear the Lord. And why in the world is fear of the Lord the beginning of knowledge, the key to understanding this entire book of Scripture written by the man whom God poured wisdom upon? Just looking at the individual words, fear and Lord, doesn't help us discern exactly what the meaning is. Uh, one commentator writes this about the phrase, fear of the Lord. He says, he says even as one will not understand a butterfly by analyzing butter and fly independently, so also fear of the Lord cannot be understood just by studying the word fear and the word Lord in isolation from each other. 
the expression works together as a compound. So we need to look and see how the biblical authors understood this, this, this phrase that's not just here in Proverbs, but it's throughout the entire Bible. We, need, we know what the word fear means, right? Which is part of the problem. Uh, we come up to this phrase, fear of the Lord, and it's confusing to us because we know what the word fear means. I mean, we fear things that are dangerous to us. We fear things that are threatening to our health, to our safety. We fear poisonous snakes, powerful storms, deadly diseases. Some of you have phobias of frogs. I don't know if she's in here, but I know one of you does, right? We, we fear anything that would take our joy or our life or that might harm our loved ones. We fear the attention that just brought to you when the phone went off. Oh my gosh, people think about me right now, right? We fear that, right? It's, it's okay. No big deal. Is Solomon saying that the key to knowledge and wisdom is to live scared of God all the time? Are we to live our lives at all times like God is dangerous to us? Well, the prob- one of the problems is, is all the times where God reveals himself to somebody in Scripture, and then God says, don't be afraid. You think of God very famously telling Joshua, right, perfect coffee cup mug verse, right, Joshua 1, 9, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, do not be dismayed. Now, why shouldn't you be frightened? For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Well, should I not be scared to death that God is with me wherever I go? <laughs> like this, this difficult phrase there. Or what about in, when John sees Jesus in all of his fullness in Revelation, uh, 20, or Revelation chapter 1, John sees the glory of Christ, and it says this, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I'm the first and the last, and the living one. I died, behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and Hades. Well, that's terrifying. And Jesus says, fear not. So we, we know, just from looking at those two examples, there, there's, there's a way to fear God that's wrong, but apparently there's also a very right, very necessary way to fear God. And from Proverbs, we learn that whatever this phrase means, the fear of the Lord, Proverbs seems to say to us it's absolutely a wonderful thing. In fact, it's a necessary thing for your life. I just want you to just, we'll, we'll just take a little journey here. We're toward the beginning of the book, so a lot of what we're doing is introductory, and we're, we'll take these sort of big passes through just to show you what's to come. Listen as the phrase, fear of the Lord, continues through the book of Proverbs like glue holding all the wisdom together. Listen to uh, chapter 8, verse 13. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil are perverted and perverted speech I hate. Chapter 10, verse 27. The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. Chapter 14, verse 2. Whoever walks in uprightness fears the Lord, but he who is devious in his ways despises him. Chapter 15, verse 16. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. 
chapter 16, verse 6, by steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Chapter 19, verse 23, the fear of the Lord leads to life. And whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. Chapter 22, verse 4, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Chapter 23, 17, let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. One more, chapter 28, verse 14, blessed is the one, blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. So as you can see, in the book of Proverbs, fear of the Lord is never mentioned in a negative way. It's always mentioned as something you should embrace if you want wisdom and blessing and life, life eternal, life more abundantly. So that's great, but again, what is it? <laughs> Proverbs drops us hints along the way. I mean, in, in the verses we just read, we see that fear of the Lord is connected with hatred of evil, a soft heart humility, rejection of our own wisdom in favor of God's, contentment, uprightness. But while those things are associated with fear of the Lord, perhaps even the results of fear of the Lord, they don't exactly give us a definition. So we've looked at everything Proverbs has to say about fear of the Lord, so, but still need clarity. So at this point in your Bible study, right, you, you think, okay, well, let's keep digging. Let's keep plotting away to figure out this phrase. So we know that Solomon would have known his Bible, right? In Deuteronomy, uh, it, it teaches that kings were supposed to have a handwritten copy of God's Word that they wrote down, that they could keep, that they could meditate day and night. And so we know that, that Solomon likely knew his Bible. He knew the writings of Moses. He likely had this personal handwritten copy of God's Word. And if we look to the writings of Moses, what we find is that Solomon did not make up a new concept with this concept of fear of the Lord. He's articulating things that he has read about already, things God has said to Moses in Exodus and Deuteronomy. So he's not developing a new concept. So let's study what he would have been studying, right? So if you got your Bibles, flip with me to Deuteronomy chapter 5 or look, look at it on the screen. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, the Lord is speaking to Moses. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 29, listen to what God says. He's desiring of the people of Israel. God says, Oh, that they had such a heart as this always, to fear me and to keep all of my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. So here's God saying, man, if I just, if there's one thing I, I wanted from the people, I would want them to fear me, that they would keep all my commandments. Now, over and over again, you'll see fear of the Lord being connected with obedience. Fear of the Lord and obedience described as inseparable realities. If you fear God in the right way, you'll want to walk through life God's way. You'll see it again in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 2. Deuteronomy 6, verse 2. That you may fear the Lord your God 
you and your son and your son's sons by keeping all his statutes and commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Obedience and fear of the Lord being talked about in the same way. They're connected together. Now, that makes sense even in our instinctive understanding of the word fear, right? You know, one of the ways that you could read this is, I mean, yeah, if you're afraid of God, I mean, if you're afraid of his wrath and his judgments, then you obey his commands, right? Maybe that's what Moses is advocating for. Maybe he's saying, be scared to death of God because he'll crush you. So you should obey him and then things will be good for you. Perhaps that's the way some of you think about God. Perhaps some of you see God as a sort of wrathful, rule-giving judge who will smash you if you mess up. So your obedience is motivated primarily by your fear of punishment. Now, Makes sense if those are the only verses in the Bible that we have, but they're not. In fact, what doesn't make sense is the actual command that Moses then gives to all the people. Okay, I hope that you fear God. I hope that you obey God. Now, here's the command you are to obey. Here's, here's command number one, numero uno, most important command. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel... The Lord our God, the Lord is one. What is it you're supposed to do? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Okay, okay. Now we have a strange dichotomy wrapped up in this concept of fearing God. How can fear obedience and love coincide in the same responsibility that we have to our God. And not just any old love, like you love pizza or that you love the Georgia Bulldogs, two-time national champions, in case you guys need to know. It's not just that kind of love. <laughs> now I'm stepping on toes, you know what I'm just kidding. <laughs> not just that kind of love, but I, I, I'm talking about the, the, the love here is the whole heart, whole soul, whole might consuming love for God. That's, that's, Moses says, that's what you're supposed to do. Be in love with Yahweh the Lord. So the fear of the Lord we're supposed to have is a kind of fear that actually draws us into God, not away from. The fear of the Lord we're supposed to have is a kind of fear that draws us to God. If it's the kind of fear that drives us away from God, then it's the wrong kind of fear. This kind of fear of the Lord somehow, some way, is totally and completely compatible, compatible and in fact necessary for loving God wholeheartedly. You don't rightly fear Him, then you don't really know Him, and you don't really love Him. C.S. Lewis portrays a helpful dichotomy in his children's story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and in the story... He tries to represent Christ uh, as Aslan, the great lion. And when the children in the story first hear about Aslan, this great lion, they get nervous and they ask the question, is he safe? And their guide, Mr. Beaver, answers, of course he's not safe, but he's good. There's a sense in which Aslan should be feared because he's a lion but it should be loved because he's a good lion. 
There's a sense in which God should be rightly feared because he's God and you're not. But he should be loved because he's a good God. Charles Bridges defines fear of the Lord in this way. He says, the fear of the Lord is that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to the Father's law. There's a sense in which I want my own children to revere me for my position, my authority in their life, but it's my wielding of that authority for their good, for their protection, for their instruction, for their provision that draws them near to me in love. This is the kind of relationship that God is inviting you into in the new covenant. In, in Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah prophesies about the type of covenant, the type of relationship that people will be invited to have with God through what Jesus does on the cross. And listen to how it's described in Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 39. This is what God says he'll do through, through, through Christ. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make them an everlasting covenant that will not turn away, I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing good to them, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. Do you hear that? The, the plan is, is that they fear me so rightly that they will not turn from me. This is not a fear that sends you fleeing to the hills. This is the kind of fear that draws you into the embrace of a father because he's the one that'll kick everybody else's tail, <laughs> right? Because he's on my side. If God is for me, who can be against me? It's the kind of reverence and awe that draws you into his embrace, rather sends you running from his embrace. Notice in Psalm 45, King David writes this psalm, so likely Solomon probably heard this discussed from his own dad, right, King David, Psalm 45, verse 19, David writes that God fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears the cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him. Do you hear that? Fear of him and love for him used in parallel. Now, interesting stuff, great. We've just did a little dance around the Old Testament. <laughs> Let's ask the question again, okay, Great, what is it? <laughs> what is it to fear the Lord? We know it's some sort of combination of fear, obedience, and love, but what is it? Let me take a stab at a, at a very basic definition, and this is the truth. First truth for you to write down is this. Truth number one, to fear the Lord is to relate to God as he really is. To fear the Lord is to relate to God as he really is. In other words, it's to respond to God and his word for who he really is and what he's really said. Whether you know it or not, most of your problems in life can be traced back to your perception of who God is, what God is like, what he's doing in the world, and what he said. Anxiety depression, sin, laziness, all very different things, but if you trace them back to 
the root, there's a disconnect between your thought life and the full reality of who God is and what he has said. A.W. Tozer says this, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about us. The most pretentious fact about any man is not uh, what at any given time they may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. See, everyone of us in this room, me included, we have this proclivity to shape God into our own image rather than us conform into his image. Say it again. Our sin struggle is that we turn God, we make God to look more like us rather than us trying to look more like him. We have this tendency to see God as smaller than he really is. Less holy than he really is, less just, less sovereign, less loving, less merciful, less truthful, less wise, less involved than he really is. We have this proclivity of breaking the first two commandments that were given to us. In fact, God's longing for his people in Deuteronomy chapter 529, he says, oh, that you would fear me. It comes right after God has just recapped the 10 commandments to the, to, to the people. If you look back at Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 6, this is what God says. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 6, he's, he's rehashing the Ten Commandments to them. He's saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself the carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or, or is on the earth beneath or that's... In the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Okay, so let's ask the question again. What's the beginning of knowledge? What's the key to wisdom? What is the fear of God? It's the right commitment to the first two commandments. Don't reduce God to a more manageable idol. <laughs> Don't have other gods. Relate to God as he really has revealed himself. Relate to him as he really is. So, so then, okay, who is he? What's he like? Who is the Lord that we fear Rightly, that's the question I want to turn to now for the rest of the sermon. Who, who, okay, cool. Who, who is the Lord we're supposed to fear? But specifically, who is the Lord according to Proverbs, right? So many people assume that the book of Proverbs uh, is primarily just a practical book. It's just a book about wisdom. It's just a book about parenting and life and being a good worker. And it's, just, it's, it's a worker that, that makes for great little fortune cookie slogans to make sure that you're doing a wise thing. It's not so much a book about God. But that assumption is a false way of viewing life in God's world. And in fact, it's that assumption that Proverbs actually exists to confront. God is not separate from the practicality of life. God cannot be relegated to some certain moment or some certain area of your life. He cannot be shelved for six days of the week, only be taken out of the box one day a week for some worship music. 
He's, he should be there in the way you think about parenting, there in the way you think about relating to your spouse, there when you think about the way you, of relating to your boss, the way you think about relating to singleness, the way you think about relating to worry and anxiety and depression. You, you don't deal with all those things and then pick God up at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and put him back to go deal with those things apart from God. One commentator writes this, what the alphabet is to reading notes to reading music, numerals to mathematics, the fear of the Lord is to attaining the revealed knowledge of this book. It's everywhere. In Proverbs, there is a deep, beautiful, all-inspiring doctrine of God that permeates every ounce of the wisdom it gives. And I just want you to catch a glimpse of it for the remainder of this sermon. So these truths are going to come in rapid fire, okay? Truth number two, the Lord of Proverbs is creator. Now, if you think that listening to a sermon is primarily about you receiving information, let me me just challenge that for a second. This moment where the word is read aloud and we think about God is a moment where we worship together, right? So I want you to transition your brain right now. If you're in information mode and I'm just collecting some stuff or I'm falling asleep or, you know, whatever, we transition your mode. No, no, no. Worship doesn't start when Drew stands up and picks up his guitar. We're going to worship for a moment as we hear God be described, okay? Listen to how God is described as creator. Proverbs 3, 19 through 20. The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deep broke open. The clouds dropped down the dew. Proverbs 20, verse 12 says this, The hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. In Proverbs, the Lord is both establishing the unfathomable magnitudes of the heavens, and he's fine-tuning the delicate design of the human eye. He's creator of all things. He created all things according to his own wisdom. He didn't have to go to an instruction manual. He didn't watch YouTube videos to figure out how to make the universe. That's how I figure out everything in the world. But he, he, from himself, the source of all wisdom said, I'm going to make this and this uh, built into the very fabric of his created order is knowledge and wisdom that flows from God. Calculus and physics work because God ordained it so. Musical notes produce soothing sounds that move the eardrum in particular ways that invoke particular emotions within his creatures because God is the one who designed the ways that vibrations travel through the air to create sound. He is the creator and enabler and the recipient of musical worship. All his idea. The world order works in a particular way because God says so. The Lord of Proverbs is creator. Truth number three, the Lord of Proverbs sees all things and knows all things. He didn't just create the world and then step back from it to do its own thing. 
He sees all, all that happens in the world, every detail of every action done under the cover of darkness or in the broad daylight. He knows every thought in the secret places of a person's heart. Just listen to this God whom we worship this morning. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 8. He's guarding the paths of the justice and watching over the way of his saints. Chapter 5, 21, for a man's ways before the eyes of the Lord, the man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. He ponders all his paths. Chapter 15, 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place. He's keeping watch on the evil and the good. Chapter 15, 11, Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of the children of man. Chapter 20, 27, the spirits of a man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all his innermost parts. Chapter 21, 2, every way of man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. It's not just that God had all the knowledge in the world to create the world. It's that God presently, at this moment, has all knowledge about the world we're living in right now and all knowledge of every intention of the human heart including yours and mine. He's always been, will always be, all-knowing of all things, even the things you keep most secret. The Lord sees all things and knows all things. Truth number four, the Lord of Proverbs accomplishes all that he purposes. So not only does he know everything, but he's not limited in accomplishing what it is he wants to accomplish. Proverbs 16.3. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Chapter 16, 9, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Chapter 16, 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Chapter 19, 21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Chapter 21, 1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Chapter 21, verse 30, no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. He is sovereign, king of kings, and lord of lords. By his wisdom, he holds together the galaxies. By his wisdom, he causes the dice to land as he wills. The God of Proverbs is doing something in the world with the details of your life. He's working out a will. He's leading the universe toward a desired end, and nothing can stop him. But what's he doing? Choose number five. The Lord of Proverbs blesses the wise. God is personally involved in the lives of people as they walk wise paths. Not only is he personally involved, he actually delights in blessing those who walk the path of wisdom as he reveals it. Look at chapter 2, verse 6. Chapter 2, verse 6. Listen, this is what the Lord promises he does. The Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He's the shield to those who walk integrity. He guards the paths of justice. He watches over the way of his saints. 
chapter 30, verse 5 says, every word of God proves true, and he's a shield to those who take refuge in him. Proverbs 16, 20 says, whoever give thought to the word will discover good, and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. What's God doing in the world? He's watching over the way of his saints. God's instructing his people in such a way that his instructions lead to life, joy, and satisfaction. The way of wisdom that God ordains is the good path for us to walk. Listening to God, believing in God, following God's way is the way to live a blessed life where you experience the favor of God partially in this life but in full one day to come. The Lord Throughout Proverbs, do you believe that God, right now, he's the kind of God who actively, according to Proverbs, listens to your prayers, intervenes for his people, provides safety, provides guidance, provides rest for his people. But on the flip side, and this is our our last little adoration of God here. He's also a just God who's inflicting judgment on the foolish. Truth number six, the Lord of Proverbs punishes the fool. Chapter one, verse seven is clear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fool hates wisdom. The fool hates instruction. He does not want to be told when he's wrong. He does not relate to God as he really is. He, He fears God in the wrong way. He fears being controlled by God in a way that steals his joy. He fears God's instruction, doesn't believe it's really good for him. He he fears missing out. He fears what people will think. He fears surrendering to the Lord's will. His fear causes him to run from God rather than to God, and he chooses a foolish path which God promises leads to destruction. And God's not passive in that. God's actively involved. Verse 33 of chapter 3, the Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. Chapter 10, verse 29, the way of the Lord's a stronghold to the blameless, but destruction to evildoers. What's God doing in the world? Well, he's giving life to those on the path of wisdom. And he's bringing destruction to those on the path of foolishness. He's a just judge who in the end will deliver the final verdict to all evil doers. So this is a picture of the Lord, right? Creator, all-knowing, all-seeing. All, he, he controls all things. He pours blessing on his people, but he's also wrathful and pours justice on those who hate him and reject him. Again, we're confronted with the dichotomy of the fear of the Lord. He is both to be feared and loved. He blesses abundantly, but he judges justly. The difficulty of the dichotomy is knowing whether you fit into the category of the wise or the category of the fool. (laughs) In what way should you be fearing the Lord? (laughs) Should you expect eternal blessing from this majestic Lord? Or should you expect eternal punishment from this majestic Lord? The same conundrum 
was all the way back in Deuteronomy. Did you, did you hear it earlier when he says, when God says, I want you to fear me, and then he describes himself. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 9, he says, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. He says, I'm going to visit the iniquity of you and your children's children. I, I'm going I'm to serve justice on all this. But then in verse 10, it says, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Well, great. Well, which one do I fit in? <laughs> right? <laughs> am I the verse 9, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 9 kind of guy? Or am I the Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 10 kind of guy? Because sometimes I feel like verse 9 kind of guy. Sometimes I feel like verse 10 kind of guy. And I'm really wanting verse 10 kind of guy. Steadfast love to the thousands. Not the visit my iniquity. Oh, Lord. God is the God who judges sin and forgives sinner. He dwells in unapproachable holiness, yet he asks us to draw near. He's a God to be feared always, but when we tremble before him, he says, don't be afraid. How does all that work? Well, I think the answer doesn't actually really come in Proverbs as clearly as it does at the climax of the biblical story, the cross of Jesus Christ. This is our final truth here, truth number seven, to fear the Lord rightly, look to the cross. Because at the cross, we see all of these realities of God happening in a moment in history. It's only at the cross where we get the answer to the deepest questions of how do we relate to God. How can God be a punisher of sin and a savior to sinners? How could I ever be considered wise rather than a fool when my foolishness always seems to speak a louder word? At the cross of Christ, we see the full wrath of a holy God being poured out. That is, visiting the iniquity of the world. But the iniquity of the world is on the shoulders of of the person of Jesus. We see darkened sky, ground shaking, veil tearing, bloodied, broken body of Jesus taking the last breath under the weight of the wrath of God for the sins of the world. And at the same time that we see a holy, just God putting on display what sin deserves, when we look at the cross, we also see love on display, don't we? We see God who made a way to show steadfast love and kindness despite our sin. At the cross, we see the man who became wisdom for us, who lived wisely all of his days and then died a fool's death. In Jesus, we see someone who deserved all the blessings of wisdom, but who received God's curse in himself for the foolishness of the world. Fear God. The God who should crush you with his might because of your disobedience, but who crushed Jesus instead. Do you fear God rightly this morning? Do you believe in God as he really is? The gospel message that he made a way for you to draw near to him through Christ and for him to say, don't be afraid. Do you believe that God's word is wise and that everything he instructs is for your good? Do those beliefs impact your actions and your thoughts? If God has clearly shown in his word that you're to be a meaningful part of the body of Christ, to join yourself to the church, to build others up, then what keeps you from it? 
If God's called you to make disciples, then why, why the ongoing busyness of your life? How is that an adequate excuse? If God's declared that sexual sin is a destructive abomination of the Lord that will destroy you and your family, why go to it again? If God is sovereign over every detail in the cosmos, why spend so much of your life worrying about what only God can control? If God's promised you an internal inheritance, then why do you live and save and spend as if this is the only life that there is? Now, you know, there's a lot of complicated answer to any of those questions, but I can tell you this. Gaze at the magnitude of God. Be in awe of him and his word, and that's the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Let's pray together. Father, help us to check our perception of you this morning. Do we think of your word to be not for our good? Do we think of you to be less in control than you really are? Do we think of you to be less holy, less concerned about our sin than you really are? Do we think of you as less loving than you are, less forgiving, less gracious, less merciful? Is our own experience of our own fathers who are to be feared in the wrong way, affecting the way that we are to fear you and to draw near and be embraced by you. Whatever the case may be, Father, adjust our perception of you this morning that we might fear you rightly. Help us not to be fools. Help us not to hate your wisdom and instruction. Help us to walk in wisdom. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.